Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you again to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. We're looking at verses 30, uh, 29 to 34. 29 to 34 is our text. When you and I think about the gospel, when we think about its promises of peace with God, we think about rest for the sin-sick soul, we think about the gospel and its spiritual and eternal blessings for the lost. It's worth pondering. I think this is worth just thinking about for a moment by way of introduction. When and how does God bestow his grace to us as sinners? And I think Romans 5 is one place that helps us properly understand the when and the how of God's grace in our lives. Uh, Romans 5 verse 6 says that while we were still weak, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And, and then just a couple of verses later in verse 8, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says at the end of that section in verse 10, while we were still enemies, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so I'd ask, what conditions were met within us? All right, for God to send his son into the world to die for sinners. And the obvious answer is none. No conditions were met by us. That's the force of a verse we know well, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Romans 5 and, and John 3 and in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and other passages like them remind us that we are not to confuse the biblical truth that our sins are forgiven solely based upon the death and resurrection of Christ with a very different and unbiblical notion that God loves us solely based upon the death and resurrection of Christ. The scriptures are clear, neither we nor the Lord Jesus Christ, nor anyone else do anything to convince our Heavenly Father to love us. He already loves us and has loved us since before time began. Uh, God loved us, Ephesians 1 verse 4 said, before the foundation of the world. And because he loves us with an eternal love, he sent his Son who came willingly, who came joyfully to die and rise again on our behalf to bring us to himself. John Owen, famous uh, writer uh, and theologian and pastor, wrote, uh, he says, how few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious and doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questions are there of his goodwill and kindness? At best, many think that there is no sweetness at all in God towards us. But what is purchased, except, except he says, what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. He says, it is true that that alone is the way of communication, meaning that is how we receive the fullness of his love. But the free fountain and spring of all, he says, is in the bosom of the Father. So as we think about, as we meditate upon the resurrection, along with every other dimension of Christ's earthly ministry, his death on the cross, his sinless life, and so forth. One important reality we need to see in the resurrection is God's love for those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. God's love is what sent Christ from heaven to earth 
God's love is what compelled Christ to pay the penalty for our sin at the cross. And God's love is what raised Christ from the dead in triumph over sin and death and hell. Every dimension of the gospel, every dimension of the good news, including the resurrection, is an expression of the inexpressible love of the Father who is its fountain and spring. We need to understand that. And so to say as some of the Corinthian believers were doing, as Paul writes here, that there is no resurrection of the dead is, in a sense, to impugn God's love for the lost. It is to call into question that Christ's work is sufficient, and it opens the door for adding various preconditions that we must attain to to be reconciled to God and become worthy of his saving grace, procuring eternal life. And so I don't think it's going too far to say that what's at stake in the resurrection, that doctrine of resurrection, is the very character of God himself who loves us with an eternal love. Every detail of that good news, including the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection, is essential. And therefore, Paul understands it is worth enduring whatever sacrifices may be required in defending its truthfulness. And that is what informs his vigorous defense of the resurrection in this chapter. We believe and confess in the resurrection of the body. We believe that. And for the most part, the Corinthians did as well, even if they hadn't thought through how all the what-ifs would affect what will be. And so Paul, watchful, patient as he always is, writes in this chapter to reiterate and to reason and remind them that the integrity of the gospel, the, the validity of our faith, rises and falls upon the truthfulness of the resurrection. Now, we saw, just by way of quick review, in 1 to 11, God's grace is front and center, and we see Paul reminding us of the common ground that we all hold through the gospel. Verses 1 to 11 are the foundation stones in which Paul's going to construct this argument, and he says the resurrection is essential. He makes explicit the message he preached to them that they received and that they stand in in verse Three, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is God's love for sinners uh, summarized and demonstrated through his son. He says, you believe this, I believe this, Right? And the fact that we have trusted in all that Christ has accomplished is proof that God has indeed poured his grace into our hearts, that we believe that and are trusting in that message. And then in verses 12 to 19, then having laid out this common ground of our faith, Paul lists five inescapable consequences that follow from denying that resurrection truth. He says, if we deny the resurrection, if that's not true, if that didn't happen the way the scriptures tell us, then we are essentially invalidating our preaching. We are undermining our faith. He says we are discrediting our testimony because we're proven to be liars. We are abandoned in our sin, and ultimately we are the most pitiful people on the planet. These 
Uh, these realities are true. If the premise is true that there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of them in verse 12 were saying, then those conclusions would be necessarily true. But Paul knew and we know that Christ was raised and therefore all those who belong to Christ through faith have a glorious and a sure hope. And that's what we saw last Sunday in verses 20 to 28. They function like a bridge that transport us from the what ifs of what if there is no resurrection to what will be in the future. In these verses that we saw in detail last Sunday, Paul moves from the hypothetical to the inevitable. He moves from the conjecture of what if there is no resurrection to the consummation of all things at the end of the age. And so he says, listen, you've, you've planted seeds of doubt in the people's minds. You've claimed, you've made this claim that there is no resurrection of the body to come, and that carries with it some pretty devastating consequences. But here is how it really is, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead and the first uh, the first fruits of those who are asleep. All of the what-ifs of, uh, of the Corinthian cohort, they melt away with these simple words, but now, but as it is. Paul then, with an emphatic contrast in verse 20, expresses the way things really are at the present moment. Christ has been raised from the dead, and he says, guess what? That has necessary implications of its own which he lays out in verse 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So in those verses, Paul, we saw, demonstrates that Christ's resurrection makes our resurrection as believers inevitable. It is inevitable. By calling Christ the first fruits, Paul is asserting that the resurrection of the believing dead is without question. It has been guaranteed by God himself. You say, well, how is that possible? You know, how, how does Christ rising guarantee our resurrection? And his point is, just as death came into the world through Adam, so eternal life comes into the world through Christ. Just as in Adam's sin, coming into the world brought with it the consequences of sin, evil, judgment, and divine uh, 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 discipline. So Christ's work has brought untold consequences of goodness and divine blessing. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. And we said the caveat, the, the, war, the um, qualifier, is that the all who are in Adam, all humanity, are not identical with the all who are in Christ in that in those statements. We pointed out that each of the two atoms act as a head of a humanity, the old humanity, the old man, and the new man, and that not all people belong to the new. So these verses are not teaching a universal salvation or that all will be saved in the end. He's simply saying that all who are in Adam, all who are to die, are, will die. And while at the same time, all who are in Christ who live who are to live, will live. That's all he's saying there. So then he went on in, verse, uh, in verses 23 uh, to give us the framework of our sure hope. And then in verses 24 to 28, he gave us a, he described the finalization of our sure hope where we were reminded that at the end of everything, the triune God will be all in all. Christ triumphs over all his enemies. All who are united to him by faith 
and the creation itself will be resurrected and renewed to the eternal praise of the glory of God's grace. That is what awaits us in the future. So, having laid out then both the logical and the theological arguments in verses 12 to 19 and 20 to 28 respectively, Paul now, as we come to our text, ends with a personal argument in verses 29 to 34. And we've said this before, and it bears repeating again because it's all over the scriptures, and that is this reality that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. How, what we believe and think, it will affect how we live. To, to say it another way, what you think and believe about God affects how you live before him in a watching world. And therefore, as disciples, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we ought to look increasingly more in practice what we believe and what we profess in our doctrinal statement. That's what sanctification is all about. So as you learn more and more about God through his word and by his spirit, your life, my life, ought to, ought to look more and more like Christ the longer we walk with him. But in Corinth, things were moving in the opposite direction. In Corinth, rather than bringing their practice into conformity with their profession, their practice was increasingly contradicting their profession. And Paul is going to point that out with what is more or less in these verses an ad hominem argument. It's an ad hominem argument. And you say, what do you mean when you say Paul's argument is ad hominem? I mean, Paul's argument is centered on persons, not positions. Does that make sense? He's not arguing uh, uh, premises explicitly. He is arguing, you know, in relationship to their person. Normally, normally, ad hominem arguments are not the strongest game plan when it comes to debate. But they can be useful, and they can be ethical. And in the Spirit's hands, as it is here, with Paul, an ad hominem argument has the effect of dragging into the open the incoherencies and the inconsistencies that otherwise remain hidden under, you know, in, in the shadows, if you will. And again, we see, we see Christ doing this in his earthly ministry. For example, the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, um, you know, Christ is preaching to the, to the crowds, and these people are are mostly Jewish and, and obviously um, would probably call themselves God-fearing people. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? That's a, that is him centering his argument, not on any theological debates, but on them. He's, Jesus is exposing the inconsistency between what they confess to believe, saying, oh, I'm a, I, I, I'm a follower of God, uh, you know, and how they actually were living how they conducted themselves. Later on in his ministry, the rich young ruler comes to him and he calls Jesus. He says, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Mark 10 records for us Jesus' response. He says, why do you call me good? Why are you personally calling me good? No one is good except God alone. Again, he is pointing out the inconsistency between what the man was saying with his lips, speaking to Jesus as if he you know, were this 
teacher sent by God when what he truly believed, as you get into the chapter, into the rest of the narrative, is um, that he didn't believe God or his word at all. And so that is, I think, uh, that is essentially what Paul is doing here in verses 29 to 32. Through the use of some carefully crafted questions, he shines a light on the inconsistency of the Corinthian believers in claiming there is no resurrection. And how, and he shows that that's inconsistent with how they and even he lives his life before then pivoting in verses 33 and 34 to make an appeal that we bring our conduct in line with our confession, that we believe and confess the resurrection of the body. So our outline is, is a simple three-part outline. This is kind of the roadmap for where we're going. Paul is going to shine his light on the Corinthians in, verses, uh, in verse 29. And then he's going to shine the light uh, on himself in verses 30 to 32. And then he's going to shine his light on all of us at the end in verses 33 and 34. So uh, we begin where Paul begins in verse 29. He's going by shining the light, his light, uh, through his questions on the Corinthians in verse 29. He says... Otherwise, and this is on the heels of what he's just said, that God will be, uh, at the end of the age, God will be all in all. He says, now that, you know, this is what's coming. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, you're probably looking at verse 29 and saying to yourself, what in the world does this mean? <laughs> what is Paul talking about? This is, I confess, one of the more difficult verses to interpret in all of the New Testament. There are something like 30 or 40 different interpretations that have been put forward in writing through the centuries in church history. There are views that claim Paul is using this word baptize, this verb baptize in a metaphorical sense. And what he's really talking about is um, believers being thrust or immersed into, the, into um, the ranks of suffering and death for their faith, like as a martyr. Some views float out um, various meanings, what he means by being baptized for the dead, um, it, that he's really talking about believers who are being baptized like he normally would as a profession of faith, and that they're, talk, they're being baptized for the part of them, the old man or physical body that's going to die. Um, or some have argued that Paul is speaking hypothetically here. He's kind of taking their argument and saying, well, you know, assuming that there is no resurrection, then these people are, you know, they're being baptized referring to the, uh, for the dead, meaning referring to the ranks of the dead among whom Christ would, would be named, essentially. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is dead too. So he's kind of saying, what will those do who have sworn allegiance to Christ in, in, by baptism who, you know, and Christ, for all intents and purposes, is among the countless dead who've gone before him. Like, what, what is that all about? There are views that claim this is simply referring to what it sounds like, that there were people in Corinth that were living believers who were being baptized, you know, for the benefit of dead relatives, or being baptized for um, uh, maybe those relatives weren't given the opportunity to uh, make a public profession of faith in baptism, or maybe they weren't believers at all, and so that they're somehow, in some kind of magical way, uh, doing this for, 
for the benefit of, of dead relatives. The interpretations literally just go on and on and on. So I have the task of trying to explain it. How should we understand this verse? Two quick caveats or qualifiers. First, I don't think anyone, anyone can be super dogmatic about their interpretation of this text. Uh, every word of verse 29, every single word has such a massive range of meaning. They're just such generic words uh, and verbs and so forth that um, we, we do have to, I think, hold our interpretation with a, somewhat of an open hand. There is, uh, this is clearly among the verses that Paul says, or Peter says in 2 Peter 3, are among the hard things to understand in Scripture. A second, though, while the specifics are not clear, uh, the function of verse 29 in context is. So we can understand the meaning, even if we don't understand all the details. Whatever they were doing, and for whatever reason, Paul clearly sees it as inconsistent with their claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of, dead, of the dead, whatever they're doing, the thrust of verse 29, it makes no sense. It's absurd. And so he's using his rhetorical questioning here to drag that incoherence into the open. So how should we understand this verse? Two things. We've got to break it down into two parts. Um, we need to understand what is the opening question how should we interpret the opening question? What will those do who are, who are baptized? What will those do? And then we need to understand what he means by baptism for the dead. So the first thing we need to understand or kind of think about is what is interpreted is what will this phrase, what will those do? Otherwise, what will those do? Okay, grammatically, you can translate this what will those do who are, this phrase, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? You can translate it as, what do those people think they are doing who are baptized for the dead? So, uh, and when you, use, when you use the future tense with this verb to do or to have, it can take on a subjective dimension. We do this in English. We do something similar in English. Uh, young adults who get tired of living at home uh, under mom and dad's rules. Maybe they're old enough to move out, but they can't really quite swing it. Uh, but, and then something comes up and they get upset. They'll run downstairs and declare, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm moving out. And you, as a parent, most likely realizing that that's, that's not going to happen, uh, will ask a question in this way. You'll say, okay, what will you do for food? Uh, what will you do for car insurance? Uh, what will you do for transportation? Because the car, we own the car. And, um, and what will you do for spending money? Because you don't have any savings, right? But what you really mean is, what do you think you will do when you ask that question? Because most likely they haven't thought through what's, what that's actually going to look like or what you're intending. So by your questions, you are pointing out the absurdity and the inc incoherence of what it is they think they're doing. And I think, I, I believe that is what Paul is getting at in verse 29. He's saying, what do those people think they're doing who are baptized, uh, being baptized for the dead? These people who say there is no resurrection. Which brings us to the second part is, what does he mean by baptism for the dead? 
So, again, commentators see this as a reference to vicarious baptism. In other words, that they're being baptized for someone else's benefit. And that he's talking about living believers submitting themselves to the ordinance of baptism to help out a dead relative or someone who didn't profess faith in Christ. I just don't find that position compelling at all, and for a couple reasons. One, there's no biblical historical precedent for baptism in this way, anywhere, anywhere. Not in the New Testament, not in the early church. There is no Orthodox Christian community that we have a record of in the early centuries of the church ever doing this. There aren't even parallels in, fault, uh, in pagan religion. So it's really idios- it'd be real idiosyncratic to, to like that that would be going on here. So second, the second reason I don't find that vicarious baptism to be um, what Paul's describing, it is highly, and I mean highly unlikely, that Paul would allow something like that to be going on without his vigorous disapproval. I mean, just think about earlier how he dealt with their disorderly conduct at the Lord's table. I mean, he just completely uh, uh, deconstructs and, and confronts what was going on. If they had adopted some kind of magical, sacramental view of vicarious baptism for the dead, in contrary to the gospel of grace and through faith, like, I am almost 100% sure Paul would not just step over that in, in search of a bigger argument. So I don't think that's what he's was going on, and I don't think that's what it means. So what does it mean? I think the the interpretation I find to be most consistent with else you know other portions of scripture as well as Paul's argument is when Paul says that these you know what do these people think they're doing who are being baptized for the dead or for the sake of the dead? He is referring to the decision of a person to submit themselves as a candidate for baptism, like you normally would after professing faith in Christ. And the reasoning that led them to that faith and that baptism was their desire to be united with a relative or friend who'd already passed away. This, of course, would presuppose that the person being baptized shares the same trust and the same faith of that relative or that friend who has passed away. In other words, this is not a new way of salvation. This is not a vicarious way of salvation. He's simply saying that these individuals came to Christ. They're, they're, they've come to Christ. They even professed that faith publicly in the waters of baptism. And the, the sort of the impetus for that was those who have died, those whom they've known and loved. And it's really not hard to see that. I mean, just on a practical level, how the death of a Christian mother or a Christian father or a Christian grandparent or of a sibling or a close friend, how that might tip the scales for someone who's not a Christian to actually take a step back and consider the testimony of the gospel. Uh, one of the prayers I often pray for families who've lost loved ones, uh, particularly if those loved ones were Christians, is that out of this physical death, God might bring new spiritual life. And uh, I'll pray that God would use the inescapable realities of death, the realities of eternity and judgment, the brevity of life, that God would use that somehow to jar unbelievers loose from their indifference to the gospel. And I think that's what Paul is talking about, is what's going on here. 
Paul, and Paul's point is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what do those people think they're doing? What do these people think they're doing being baptized for the sake of these relatives, friends, whoever, um, who died in Christ, being baptized on account of their testimony? He says, that doesn't make any sense. They're confessing Christ. They're making that confession public in the waters of baptism. And and an underlying motivation, not the only, but the underlying kind of impetus for that profession of faith is a desire to be united to their believing relative in resurrection glory. But if the dead are not raised, why? <laughs> what For what purpose? Why are they being baptized? And so Paul is shining the light, as it were, on their practice to show that it is inconsistent and incoherent with their claim that there is no resurrection. And what's implied in that is that there is a resurrection. And, and he says, you believe it. And I know you believe it because of what you're doing. You're coming forward and you're being baptized in profession of faith in Jesus Christ who, and in that act itself, you are portraying not only his life, death, and burial, but also his resurrection as you come up out of the water. So what is that? And if that's what you believe, what are you doing? What are those people, what do, they, what do those people think they're doing? He says, you need to bring your profession and your practice in line with one another. And so it is with us. We believe that there is a resurrection of the body to come. We believe Christ has been raised from the dead, as the scriptures tell and testify to, and all who are united to him by faith will also be raised. It's inevitable. And so we need to live like it. We need to live that way. We don't want to be like the Corinthians who professed one thing, that there was no resurrection of the dead, but then we're over here living as if it kind of was going to happen. Growth in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ means bringing our practice in conformity with our profession. So Paul shines the light on the Corinthians in verse 29. In verses 30 to 32, he shines the light on himself. He pivots and shines his light by way of his rhetorical questions on himself. He says in verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? And uh, I affirm, brethren, by the, boasting, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul turns from their behavior and practice to his own experience as an apostle. His life in Christ, we know, and I think this is a serious understatement, was one of danger. It was one of difficulty and persecution. He details a little bit of that in some of his writing, 2 Corinthians 11, he says uh, of those who looked at his um, afflictions as somehow God's disapproval, he says uh, all these people who um, claim to be servants of Christ who aren't experiencing the things I'm experiencing, are, are they servants of Christ? He says, I am even more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, speaking of himself, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. And he just continues, right? He says, why should I or anyone else run all those risks on account of my commitment to Christ if death is the only thing at the end of the line. His danger was very real, and it was absolutely relentless. He was rarely out of harm's way throughout his ministry. And to affirm that reality of his suffering, which we know well from the book of Acts and from Paul's own letters, he makes an oath in verse 31. I affirm, or I swear, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you'll see, at least in the NAS uh, translation, NASB, that he says, I die daily, and that's at the end of the verse, but it really should be at the beginning. It comes first in the original language, and that is meant to be for emphasis and to make sure he un- they understand that he does indeed die daily And to affirm the truthfulness of that claim, he swears an oath by those who are dearest to him, them. He says, not a day goes by that I'm at death's door. And I swear it by my pride in you, brothers and sisters, which I have on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even his boasting in them isn't self-serving. It's not self-exalting. His boast is in what Christ has done among them through him. And so in the end, his boasting is in Christ. And he continues on in verse 32 with a very specific instance in which he suffered greatly for the progress of the gospel. He says, if, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts, and he's speaking metaphorically here, at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, Paul's in Ephesus when he writes this letter. So, and, and we know from chapter 16, and verse 9, that Paul is under uh, duress. There are adversaries there. He says a wide door for effective service is opened for him in Ephesus, but he says there are many adversaries. I think that's what he's alluding to here, the difficulties that he endured. But his point, again, is if there is no resurrection then putting his life on the line as he had in Ephesus to preach the gospel, that is being done for merely human reasons, on a purely human level. And he says, what sense does it make to live like that? If we live merely at a human level, what is the profit in that? If there's no resurrection, as they claimed, his entire life of sacrificial service for Christ is without gain. He says, you might as well go the way of hopelessness and eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Which is a quotation from Isaiah verse 22, uh, chapter 22 and verse 13. Drawn out to its logical conclusion, a resurrectionless future is license for a life of self-indulgence and self-centeredness. Discipline and sacrifice for the purpose of godliness is is absurd. If there is no resurrection, as we saw back in chapter uh, 15 and verse 19, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
So Paul shines the light on himself and saying, what am I doing if there's no resurrection? What are you doing? What am I doing? Lastly, he's going to shine his light on all of us in verse 33 and 34. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. And that introduces a secular proverb found in, uh, written by Menander or maybe as early, even earlier by um, the Greek writer Euripides. Paul is giving us in verse 33 a truism, a proverb. And just because it comes from an unbeliever doesn't make it any less trustworthy. Um, in fact, I think it makes it all the more, um, makes us all the more accountable when we think about it. Because even those without the light of the knowledge of God know that keeping the wrong kind of company, in this case, he could well be referring to those who deny the resurrection, that that has a corrupting effect on Christian habits. That's what the word morals means. It's literally the term habits. And that that will turn people away from the truth. He says, evil conversations such as those like who say that there is no resurrection, he says that can only have a corrupting effect on your Christian character. And so, really, verse 33, we see the power of imitation and the influence of what surrounds us. And this truism that you become what you behold. You become what you behold. As a believer, now as a believer, that can work for you in terms of growth and godliness. Paul says uh, back in chapter 11, he says, imitate me the way I imitate Christ. Or in Philippians 3 and verse 17, he says, uh, join in following my example, brethren, and uh, walk according to the pattern you have seen in us. So there's an imitation of godliness that leads us into further godliness, but it can also work against you in terms of leading you into sin and temptation. And that is... I think what stands behind like the opening verse of Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Why are they blessed? Because, you're, because those who do those things are placing themselves in, in, um, in company that has a detrimental effect on one's soul. And to walk around with wicked people and stand, as it were, in, in, the, in the path of sinners and sitting alongside and in that seat of a scoffer, I mean, that has an effect on your soul. Proverbs 13, verse 20, He who walks with the wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools suffer harm. You know, it, it, it rubs off on you. It has an effect on your soul. And so, in a, in a sense, doctrine is destiny. Doctrine, you know, character, it's been said character is destiny. Well, doctrine is destiny. And when you stop and consider the point of the whole passage, this, this whole passage, verses 29 to 34, and you consider that the whole point of the passage is to get the Corinthians to change their view about the resurrection, it isn't hard, it, it's hard, I guess I should say, to unsee 
a direct connection between our conduct and our confession. Gordon Fee says in his commentary, Paul's concern is a simple one. You and I are to live as people who not only have a past in Christ, but a future. And so the application of the text is given to us plainly in verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. He says, I say this, I speak this to your shame. He says, uh, become sober-minded. Come to your senses. Wake up from your, uh, become sober after drunkenness is, is the metaphorical implication there. Uh, he, it's a fitting command. These, these Corinthians who considered them claimed to be sober thinkers and learned and wise, and condemning the resurrection as if it's something wild and enthusiastic and kind of silly. He says, um, you're, you're the one walking around in a spiritual stupor. He says, some, for some have no knowledge of God. He's, and what's implied there is he's saying, you don't have a right knowledge of God. So it's interesting. The whole section, this whole section, Paul has been discussing a doctrinal question, not a moral issue. He's, he wants to litigate what they're claiming to be true or not true about the resurrection. And yet, and yet, no matter which way he turns, he's like a compass needle. He keeps going back to true north. And he says, be sober-minded. Stop sinning. The four, in verse 34, is an explanatory and kind of co- with a causal force. He's saying it underscores that sound doctrine leads to sound living. And unsound doctrine, conversely, Unsound doctrine or ignorance of doctrine in the end leads to unsound living. And so Paul then in this text links failure to live rightly with a failure to know rightly. Consequently, that is why it is our conviction that doctrinal preaching and thorough biblical exposition are far more spiritually nourishing and beneficial for the church than any practical self-help application-saturated preaching. When God's people see him in his word, in all of his glory, they begin to truly know him. And if they know him and have been known by him, they will imitate him. Everywhere they go, in everything they do. And so we preach and teach the word the way we do because this reality is made plain to us in the scriptures. We wouldn't know this if God hadn't told us through Paul, but it's so essential. Paul is concerned that their conduct, all the issues that he's addressing earlier in the chapters, in many ways seem to be tied back to this reality of their, uh, their false understanding of what is to come. And so they're living just like he quotes uh, Isaiah, you know, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's, it's, it's all about what we can get now. Why sacrifice? Why serve? Why, why put off and put to death the flesh when it doesn't really matter? And Paul says, no, 
Uh, you need to be sober-minded. You need to think rightly. You don't understand who God is. You don't get it. He says, and this is almost shameful on your part that you don't understand it. And so from there, now he's going to pivot in verses 35 to 49 to answer some objections. Well, okay, some of you will say, well, what, what does that look like? If there is a resurrection, what does that look like? And then he's going to explain some of those details before finally in verses 50 to 58, reminding us that in the end, God is victorious and we must persevere in faith. That's where we're going to go in the next few weeks. But um, powerful questions here that quicken the soul to godliness, sober-mindedness, and a love for the truth. And, and I pray that we would continue to be that, that kind of people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's instruction, Paul's powerful use of questions and systematic argumentation to bring to the surface this reality that doctrine, in, in a sense, is destiny for us. And if we don't know the truth, we cannot ever hope to obey it. And if we don't see you for who you are and we don't know you, we cannot possibly walk in step with you. I pray that our church would be known for its um, knowledge of the truth, but also that, that our practice would fall in conformity with our, with our confession, that, uh, that our, 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 our profession of faith would be evident in the way that we live day by day. And we can't do that the way we ought, and we know that. We, we see how we fall short in that, and our hearts are grieved. And so we come back to you now, and we confess, Lord, we, we have failed you, and we have fallen short, but we know you to be a God of, of grace and forgiveness. And as the one who who trusts not in themselves, but in Christ and Christ alone, there is mercy, there is pardon, there is power over sin's influence in our lives. Help us to be saturated with the truth, beholding that which is right and good and honorable and pure and lovely so that we might walk in those things. Lord, help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.